Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 315. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreau. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. Happy holidays to you and a happy new year to come. My guest today is Paul Fig, producer, engineer, musician who's worked with Alice in Chains, Slipknot, Bush, The Deftones, Rush, Stone Sour, The Mars Volta, Johnny Cash. Yep. Quite a lot of people. Paul's also worked alongside Joe Barisi, Matt Hyde, Don Smith, Matt Wallace, David Bianco, George Draculius, and Greg Fiddleman. He's also a former member of the band Amen. And when he's not working on other people's records, Paul is working on music for television and film, including the HBO documentary series Sonic Highways, Fox Sports, and MTV. Great guy. We hit it off immediately. And he comes to us via Joe Barisi. Once again, thank you, Joe, for the referral. Paul Fig coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. It's the end of the year. Should we talk a little gear? All right. We'll do that. You know me. I don't talk too much about gear at all in my conversations with our our guests. But uh, let me just tell you about some random stuff that... uh, I'm finding useful in my world these days. Uh, number one, I got to give a shout out to Odyssey. Uh, I'm, I've been using the LCD XC, the closed back headphone that they make. You know, working at home during COVID, uh, I can't really crank things up all the time because everybody else is home. Everybody's, you know, the kids are schooling, my wife's doing her work, she's having meetings. So when I'm doing some audio work, I can get a lot of work done on these headphones. And then I can uh, dive into my uh, my Amphians and my Reftones and, you know, kind of finish things out. But I can honestly say my goal of being able to do a lot of work on headphones is working out because these, these have been great. Uh, got a hold of Altiverb. I know. Finally. I think I'm like the last person on the planet to get Altiverb. But I finally got it. It was a Christmas present to myself. And... It all kind of came about because I was very interested in impulse responses and capturing spaces. So even before I got Altiverb installed on my machine and purchased, I actually bought myself a used, uh, I think, you I, I don't know if you say Tivoli or Tivoli. I'm going to say Tivoli. Tivoli Audio. I got the, uh, on eBay, I picked up a used iPal battery-powered AM FM radio with an aux in, that aux in being the key part. And... I take one of my little Sony recorders and I run the impulse response information that uh, AudioEase provides and I run that through the um, Tivoli here. And then I use another Sony recorder to capture that uh, impulse response and then I feed that into Altiverb. We have a couple bathrooms in our house so I took my bathroom and um, in the kids' bathroom and sampled those. I've already started to use them in, uh, in mixes I'm working on. Very interesting. And so I think uh, this next year I'm going to pick myself up a, a probably one of those JBL LSR 308s. What are they? I think those are 308s. Yeah, the eight in, the ones with the eight inch woofer. And I'm going to take a single one of those out and capture some bigger spaces. I'm going to see if I can get access to uh, my kids' gyms, their high their high school and, and middle school gyms, and maybe some other acoustically interesting spaces. Access really is the key, and that's where you got to have friends where you can call up and say, hey, can I get in there and set up some gear and make some strange noises for an hour? That doesn't always go over well uh, with uh, with everybody, so got to figure that one out. Another great gear purchase this year, uh, the Whitestone Audio P331, tube loading box. I always tell people, look, I'm not going to tell you what it is. Just go look it up. Uh, our friends over at Whitestone Audio, uh, Dave and Kim Rosen uh, over in New Jersey, they make these boxes, and it's a very small company, and it's a great box. It's the only piece of outboard gear that I use when I'm mixing. Otherwise, I'm in the box entirely except for this one box. It sits on my stereo bus, and it's fantastic. I really, really love it. What else? The Reftone speakers have been fantastic. I sold my NS10s. That was great. Got rid of those. 
Got the ref tones? They do it for me. Between my Amphians and my ref tones, I can get it all done. Really useful. Another great tool is that I've been using over the last year, if not more. I can't remember when I got it at this point, but the Sound Devices Mix Pre 6 has been just really fantastic for me. The uh, That's what I'm recording all of this on. That's all. Every time you hear me talk, I'm actually recording directly into the sound devices just because I want to avoid the whole Pro Tools thing until the end when I'm doing all the post-production for the podcast. So that's been great. Uh, I use it as my interface when I'm interviewing guests remotely, which I pretty much do all the time. Also, uh, from our friends Cloud, uh, they sent me a cloud lifter to uh, jack up the signal on... Uh, Right now I'm using an RE20, an Electro Voice RE20 for this show. And that was a birthday gift from my wife. Also, I gotta give a shout out to the folks at Grace Design over in Colorado. Their little headphone amp that they make, the M900, has been a super useful tool, very small. And uh, when I can travel again, it will become my go-to device that I use uh, to listen to the shows, to put the shows together. It's a great box. And of course, you know, my M905, my, the, the, the big thing that I route everything into has been great. Monitor controller, switch between all my speakers, etc., all my different sources. That's been a really invaluable tool. Oh yeah, and my... Um, my Synology NAS, that, that thing is the new acquisition of the year that has really uh, changed my backup game quite a bit. And it sits over there across from me. It's In fact, I'm staring at it and it's just dead quiet. That was my concern, was putting it here in, in the studio, in the control room. And I, you know, I it only fires up at nighttime and does its thing. But during the day, it's just dead quiet, which is fantastic. So now before I sign off about all this gear talk, my ask of you is this next year, because, you know, I got to slip this in there. My ask of you in this next year is set yourself up for three things, diversification, diversification and diversification, right? Am I making my point? This next year in 2021, really, really try to eliminate the single point of failure in your life. If you've got a day job and you do audio on the side, try to get more audio work if, if you're doing it part-time and try to add maybe a third source of income to bring in an extra 500 to a thousand bucks a month, you know? Just that's, that's a good start. Now, if you're doing audio full-time and you're immersed in it, see if you can come up with an, a different, slightly different audio discipline, just something else that you can bring in uh, some more income from, from your audio work. You can diversify within audio very easily. You can definitely bring in more income with other audio activities. And if that doesn't, you know, float your boat, maybe try to come up with some other businessy type thing that'll help bring in, you know, another uh, income stream so that when things get slow in any of the, the lanes that you're getting your income from, you can adjust accordingly and not be in the dark. COVID has taught us one thing, and that is, is if you've got a gig that is not COVID proof, then you're really going to be in trouble. If you're really relying on being in front of people every day, that is, uh, that's a, a potential recipe for disaster if we have another pandemic. That's my request. All that gear talk, but now the business. Diversifying this next year if you haven't already. I wish you luck. I hope this is a great next year for all of you. And of course, I, it goes without saying, I appreciate you listening in this past year to me and all the rants that I've had. And I raise my coffee cup to you to say cheers, my friends. I hope you and your families have a great next year. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. 
They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get to it. Paul Fig here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. We'll dive right in and start with, where did you grow up? I grew up in Los Angeles, California, kind of Studio City and then Burbank. And when you were growing up, were you in music programs like school band or anything like that? I was. I was in orchestra. Hmm. What was your primary instrument? In junior high, was bass. So back then, I was like, barely five feet lugging around a giant bass. And my parents were like, really? You got to bring that thing home? I'm like, well, I have to rehearse or practice. So that was fun until I heard Eddie Van Halen's eruption and that changed my life. Then you stopped hauling around the bass? Then it was all about guitar, just (laughs) learning everything I could possibly learn about guitar. But before that, my parents, they owned a jazz club called Dante's back in the uh, early 80s and, you know, the 70s, it was pretty happening. So I was surrounded by music my whole life, pretty much. There's some Live at Dante's albums. I think Zoot Sims and Art Pepper might have some live stuff on Spotify if you check that out. Hmm. Yeah, and there's some cool YouTube videos. I'm like, wow, there's my stepdad back in the late 60s roaming the bar area during this one Art Pepper show. It was pretty awesome. So what impact did that have on you musically? Just being surrounded by a big band and all that stuff through my whole life. I mean, I think that's why when I heard Eddie Van Halen, I was like, wait a second, that's not anything I've heard this whole time. Because parents who were into jazz aren't turning on back then KLOS or any rock station. And I really didn't know what that was until I got introduced to hard rock. It was like Sabbath and Rush and Van Halen and all these bands and Zeppelin. You know, I didn't have an older brother who was into any of that stuff. Plus he was only a year older. So we were discovering everything on our own anyways. Did you spend a lot of time around Dante's? Yes. And then when I finally learned enough guitar to play, I think in in high school, I'd clean the place up. I'd prep the place for service and my friends would come over and we'd rehearse on the stage and then tear down, have a couple of beers and sneak out. (laughs) (laughs) I assume your parents were somewhat encouraging of, of your musical desires or how did they view your taking to Eddie Van Halen and and the whole change of music at that point? I think they were like, kids are going to be kids and they're doing their thing. And me and my friends were, we're going to start a band, that whole thing. And, And then they were at the club all the time. So until their divorce, which is, I think music really kind of helped me there because while that was happening, I still had music to basically fall into. And it was just like a bigger thing to me. It was more important. I could escape the craziness in the household and just concentrate on guitar. When did music take a back seat to recording an audio? When did recording an audio come onto your radar as something significant to you? I'd been in this band, Amen, since 94. And we signed a deal with Roadrunner in 2000, or 99 and started touring the world. And then 2000, we got a deal with Virgin. 
toured around the world. And I'd been helping our singer do demos and get things together. And we were at Sound City for the second time doing a record for Virgin. And I started clicking to me and the assistant engineer was so cool and laid back, just kind of just doing his thing and being a badass. And I was like, wow, I want to do that. Hmm. So sure enough, my singer took a left turn and I'm like, I'm out of here. And I quit the band, went from Virgin Records to the runner desk. You kind of came at this a little bit later because oh, 90, yeah. 99, 2000, I mean, so you've spent years playing, I assume. Yes. Mm-hmm. Basically from high school on, I was always in a band and whether we were touring or not, you had a day job that you can easily leave and just punk rock ethic, just keeping a low overhead and paying everything cash and not having to just walk away from whatever you need to. But hey, I've got this job and it's pretty groovy and I can save up and go on tour for a few weeks over the summer, come back, still have a gig or find a new one and just keep doing it because that's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to play. If you look back on your experiences as a musician, are there times when recording caught your attention at least back then or was it not until that time at Sound City? I was always fascinated. I'm like, wow, look at these these studios, because I'd have friends doing stuff and it was just like all about hanging out with the friends and supporting them, but not going into the control room and hang out with the engineer. Hey, what does this do? What does that do? What does this do? They're in the middle of working. And I respected that, but I didn't understand really the signal flow of what was happening until Sound City, where I'm just sitting there bored out of my mind watching the engineer, Mike Frazier and Mike Terry getting the setup together and, you know, routing the mics to the 8028. And okay, cool. Mike Mike pre EQ bus out to compressor to tape tape to the monitor section and I was like oh hey I want I want to learn how to do this it clicked for me and what happened from there where did you take it you said you were working the desk yeah so I went from Virgin Records to the runner desk and you're right I started late I was 32 I just turned 32 but I was super grateful because there were kids right out of recording school that would kill to be in my seat. I knew there was a dozen kids that would love to have my job. So I understood that and I just read manuals and Joe was like, hey man, if you're done out here and everything's cleaned up and you're finished, lock up the front door and you can shadow. Just keep your mouth shut. (laughs) And I did. So I got to see him do a lot of work and Dave Sardi came through and did a bunch of work and Draculius and Rick Rubin and Greg Fiddleman, all these guys that love to use the place. And Jim Scott came down. It was a big Tom Petty session. It was like all hands on deck. It was pretty, pretty amazing. So I learned pretty quick and listened and watched and learned. What are some of the takeaways of that time period of what you observed? What was the common denominator, the common theme that you observed? There's a dozen different ways to get drum sounds and guitar sounds, Mm. but it was neat to see all these guys go through and do their thing. And because I'm an assistant, I'm writing all that stuff down. And I think that's probably the most important thing any assistant engineer can do. Because all of a sudden I'm looking at these, if they don't ask for it back, I keep a copy and I'm looking at, hey, this guy EQ'd this and this guy did kind of the same thing. And, and you just, you make these connections and it's like, okay, I like that. I remember when that happened and I didn't like that and I see what's going on and okay, that's interesting. No high pass filter or hey, this guy's high pass filter is pretty high up. And I'm like, all right, that and mic placement, Joe would get out there and he would, you know, he's, doesn't sound right. And he's out there still moving it an inch. And so I come back in. All right, okay, there we go. And then he just makes it sound badass. Well, he actually makes it look super easy too. What was the, the, the moment when you stepped out of the assistant position, out of the runner position, out of the lower parts of the tier? And when, when did you up your game? Being a Sound City guy, Nick Raskulenix came in to work on a record for this band, the X's. And I just attention to detail and keeping tight notes. And my documentation book was like this thick with photos of the amps and hey, these are the pedals you used in that chain and this vocal chain for each song. And everything was highly organized. And Nick was like, hey man, I'm gonna be recording in April. You wanna come by and engineer? I'm like, absolutely. So that was a smooth transition out of Sound City. And then I think that was Stone Sour's what may ever come. Yeah, it went gold. And I was like, wow, okay, cool. And then Nick would, hey, we're going to do a Death Angel record. I'm like, I love Death Angel. And then my friends in Shadows Fall came in and we did that record and we just kept doing cool records. And, you know, so that's when and how that happened. Death Angel, Bay Area band. Yep. (laughs) Rob Capistrani, what a maniac. That guy is such a guitar whiz. He makes it look easy too out up on stage. But I saw them play at the House of Blues and man, he just made everybody seem like children. Were you surviving at this point in time? How are you making making ends meet? 
Yeah, so that's interesting. So back to the punk rock thing back in the day. So I had a groovy day job and shared this apartment with some friends. It was like a punk rock flop house and right off of Beverly and Western. And it was super cheap. So when I quit Amen and started at Sound City, I was making like $11 an hour, which was more than what I was making in Amen. But I was in this really cheap place. By that point, I had it to myself and rent control and that stuff. So I was extremely lucky. But, you know, I'm watching how the budgets are falling. I'm watching engineers that are paying $4,000 a month for their groovy pad wherever they live. And all of a sudden having to downsize because the budgets are shrinking like quickly. I kept that in mind and purchased things as I could afford them, things that I needed. So when I was in between work, I could still afford it. It's like, all right, cool. I worked for 10 weeks on this record. I'm sitting on a nice egg. It's like, all right, my job is to find another gig between here and the next time Nick Raskin likes to call me or Matt Wallace or whoever needs an engineer. And then also doing TV and film music or cues. And it's fun. It keeps you playing and creative. How did you get involved in that? Because it seems like the music world and the film world... They seem very distant from one another. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. And I was just dealing with this. I mixed two songs on that Alice Chain's Founders Award show. And the video people and film people, they really don't care about audio. They just care about the picture. They had no idea they were listening to the rough mix I made the day of the shooting. Anyway, so back to how I got into that. So after Amen, I joined this band Bluebird and the drummer was just, I want to be a composer. He just made all these relationships with music supervisors and people around LA, directors and such. And he's like, hey, I've got this guy over at Feel TV and he needs this theme song for this TV show. I'm like, all right, cool. It's like, all right, well, it needs to be like Sham 69 or something. And I'm like, all right, cool, I can totally do that. And then we did it. And then all of a sudden, hey, can we get 20 more songs kind of like this? And then it was cheap back then, but at the end of the next year, all of a sudden you get mailbox money, a royalty check would show up for your writer's share. And it was like, all right, cool. That goes in the bank. It seems like every step of the way, you're like kind of just notching up. Yeah. Gig wise, financially, stability. Yeah. And then I think the biggest step was making sure I had my own mix setup, whether I could do it in a studio or at my house. I didn't want to just have a Digio 3 or something, or if I needed to track, I wanted to track. So I've got an HT1 setup with two Avid IOs, 32 in, 32 out, and I've got a hybrid mix setup out of that as well. So I can move pretty quick and cheap if I need to. But if an artist which more than likely nowadays, it's like, well, hey, we can mix this at the studio and I can give you a super bro rate. And this is my rate per song. They're like, ah, it doesn't matter. Or it's like, yeah, that does matter. And I do want to do it at the studio and I want to be there. So that's going to be more expensive. But if they're on a budget, you know, I can save them a bit of money and do what I do in the studio at my home. And this was what, early 2000s? No, this was, that took a while. Because if I went freelance in 2006, and then you, you know, nobody wants to just hire the guy who just started out. Right. <laughs> so I had to build a repertoire, basically. But in 2012, I got my whole Pro Tools set up. And I was just wrapping up an Alice in Chains record, and I was sitting on another egg. And I was like, all right, I need to invest in myself and make sure that I've got these things. Now, I was also waiting for, I'm like, gosh, Pro Tools hasn't changed their cards or anything for like 10 years and they were having those big sales on the IOs and the cards and something's up. And then sure enough, they came out with the HDX card. And I was like, all right, cool. Because I remember when everyone was having a headache when they went from PCI to PCIe or PCIx. And everyone was like, God damn it. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I've got a setup and it's, I want to make sure it's going to be cool for the next at least three or four years. It's the last generation cheese grater, 12 core. It's like the mothership. So it's like two six cores at 3.46 and then 64 gigs of RAM. It's pretty rock solid until earlier today when I just needed to record one track. Right. It always <laughs> works for a giant setup until you come in to do a podcast. Yep. 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 Uh, I worked on this Slipknot record with Greg Fiddleman and he bought the trash can Mac that Avid was like, this is the one we support. He got the, the chassis, the Thunderbolt chassis that they support. He's got the two HDX cards in there. And it was like rolling dice, how the rig was going to crash every day. It wasn't that, hey, is it going to crash? It was like, how is it going to crash? Is it just going to like drop out or am I going to get a beach ball for two minutes while the band's still playing? They don't even know that it stopped. It was highly stressful, but we sorted that out. But gosh, when you're on a high profile session like that and you're the one flying the ship and all hell's breaking loose, you don't want to be in that seat. <laughs> well, let's talk about that for a minute. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the right way to handle 
something of that nature when you are on a high profile gig? How do you handle Pro Tools shit in the bed? Well, because it's not my setup, right? So if I brought in my rig and I know my rig's rock solid, I'm not recording 40 tracks at once, but it's pretty stable. This wasn't my rig, so I couldn't just start changing preferences and reinstalling different OSs, but it was a task. And we'd do that after the band left. We didn't want them to think like, oh, something's wrong, but discreetly, it's like, all right, we crashed, but keeping your cool. And all of a sudden the band's like, hey, I heard something or the click stopped. And it's like, yeah, you know, we had a glitch. All right, cool. We're back up and running. Just move forward. But that's super stressful because that more than like, it was like, hey, take nine. This is it. We're rocking. But at the same time, my hands are sweating because <laughs> I know this rig somehow, some way is going to give me a beach ball or just stop or just something's going to happen. And the way that setup, particular setup was, was just highly unreliable. In the situation with sessions that are having those issues, those technical issues, do you mm -hmm. think it's harder when you have less people or more people? Like Slipknot, that's a pretty large group of, of guys, right? True. But it was only the string session and the drummer. So mm. she had two guitar players, a bass player, and Jay on drums. And Clown, he's over in another studio doing weird stuff with tape machines and backwards things. And he's out creating. But there's three other people in the control room with me making sure that we're capturing it and all hands are on deck. But yeah, I would say it's tougher when there's, you got like the manager and a bunch of band members behind you and all hell's breaking loose in front of you. You don't want those people watching you sweat or trying to, you know, hey, why is that doing that? That's funny. Should it be doing that? And you've got to be like, oh, it's cool. Don't worry. This happens every now and again. But yeah, just trying to keep your cool and something like that. And yeah, and it would be super difficult with a bunch of people in there. Yeah. Or my nightmare scenario is just a bunch of people that are playing their hearts out in the live room and you're in the control room like going, oh, well, I guess we lost that. And then they come in like, let's hear it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so no, we would instantly disclose, hey, that dropped out more than likely. And it's like, and I go through this in my head, if that beach ball pops up, because I know it's going to happen, just kind of like thinking head like a ninja, I'm going to hit this key, I'm going to hit this key, I'm going to park the cursor over here and hit play and record. Because that's how, you know, it's like, hey, I missed that third verse or that post chorus, but I, I was able to pick it up here so we could actually splice that together and make a take but we did lose that but just trying to capture as much as possible that was the most important thing yeah i mean you you have to have your head on so tight you have to keep your cool and get through that moment because it happens it seems like eternity it's like that you watch that beach ball and you're just like you got people freaking out behind you and like oh my god <laughs> ah! you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> go 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 so yeah you know just keep calm and do the things you know you need to do if it just stops, then you're fucked, but yeah. you have no control. But if you can, you know, once the beach ball stops, you're going to move quickly and over, then you're golden. But I do have a tip. Just keep your tracks in input. Because if you're not an in input and you drop out, they hear that. Yeah. <laughs> They'll know something's up. Yeah. Some of these takes, there's no click. So they didn't know the click stopped. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like after like five takes, we take the click away. Then there, it's like a bunch of wild horses going for it. And it's pretty awesome, but it gets hairy. And yeah, just getting all those dudes in Slipknot to sit down, that's a task in itself. So, uh, you know, if we lose something, it's its a bummer to have to go back and try it. Hey, we need to come back tomorrow. This is too late. We're going to comp what we got and just make sure we have it. But that was a super fun session. <laughs> hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as Check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. 
but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to sampley.app or sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. What was the the process for you or strategy of getting new gigs at that point? Okay, so I just started dating my wife now, and I was working with Nick Raskulenix pretty exclusively for a while, from like 2006 to 2012. And we'd just come off of another Alice in Chains record. And right before that was Evanescence. And before that was another Stone Sour record. And we were just constantly working. And it was great because I'm flying from LA to Nashville and sometimes New York. And we're doing cool stuff. And I'm working on large consoles and living the dream. It's like, hey, if I'm going to do this, you know, Nick always says that. I want to keep working on these desks as long as I can. Because all of a sudden, you're going to be in a small room with just mic pre's and a control surface. I was supposed to work with Nick on a new Mastodon record. And he was like, dude, it's going to be badass. We're going to start in June. I was like, cool. And it was January. And then I, I hit him up. I'm like, hey, that's cool that they're not going to tour this summer because they tour every summer. He's like, oh, yeah, about that. Yeah, they're going to tour. So we're going to push that to the end of August. I'm like, all right. I'm sitting on the egg from Alice in Chains and just got through a divorce. And I'm just trying to keep my head on straight and not panic. I started running. That doesn't cost anything except for running shoes and the gas to get wherever you want to go run. And I just kept busy doing things and putting my mix rig together because that was super exciting. I built all the D-subs and all the routing and the harnesses for the rack. And then he's, uh, hey, yeah, so the bass player is going to do a side project. We're not going to do this thing until October. By that point, it was getting close to the end of March or getting into May. And I'd help Dave Bianco out at Dave's room. He'd hire me to like basically sit around and hang out with him and help him with setup and patch based stuff and runs or whatever, which I had no problem doing, especially if there was no work. I'm like, yeah, you know, I was supposed to start this gig and it's getting pushed. And he's like, well, I've got this artist and he needs to go on the road. Do you want to head out this summer and do in-ear monitors? I'm like, sure. So I met the guy and toured all over the US. I just did in-ear monitors for one guy. It's just a Mackie. It was hilarious. So that was a gig. It got me out and I met some cool other musicians and the front of house guy who ended up becoming the, there was no front of house. The guy, whoever was at the clubs would do the front of house. And then I get on the phone with Nick. He's like, yeah, we just got the budget back. And dude, I'm so sorry. I can't even fly you out here. Sorry. So from that point on, I was like, I can't rely on these producers. I have to rely on me to get this gig. So basically I just had to like start hey, there's some bands that need recording. It's like, all right, cool. I got a little groovy production space. And if it needs to be more than that little production space, I know I can get into 606 and track some awesome drums there or Dave's room if they want to track live and have dry and tight drums and do it that way. And then do all the overdubs at my little production space. And then, so I've just been kind of floating doing that until Nick's like, Jerry needs to start writing demos. So I'm working with Jerry up at his house, getting ready for rainier fog at the same time always looking out for that next thing around the corner because if i don't there's gonna be a time where there's nothing happening and if nothing's happening then it's gonna get scary you mentioned early on when we started you said you know i had this kind of diy punk thing going where pay with cash have a low overhead make it so you can walk away has that carried through till now pretty much Except for now I own a house, so I can't walk away from that. But because I was in a rent-controlled apartment for so long and I couldn't move out of it unless I was going to buy. So I was able to save and me and my wife have this groovy little pad and it's not extravagant, but I'm seven minutes from the studio and I've got Tahunga Canyons right there. I can go run for hours if I want and it's pretty comfortable. When you talk about keeping a low overhead, drill down into that a little bit. What are we talking about? What's important for an audio professional to do that? You don't have to have the fanciest gear. You just need to have the gear that can get the job done. So you don't need to spend a lot of money, but get quality pieces that you can't trust. 
I had a little production space. I was sharing it with Jim Rota from Fireball Ministry and we were paying like a thousand bucks a month or whatever this thing is. And then he ended up splitting and he had an Aurora sidecar and I brought in this Sound Workshop Series 34 console and when he took that thing. And so it was just my place for a while and I made that work. So, I mean, like you don't need to buy $80,000 worth of equipment to do something. Yeah, You can have a handful of pieces of gear to get the job done. And are there lifestyle choices that you made? Well, yeah, it's like I make coffee at home. Okay. (laughs) I'll bring sack lunch or salads or something to eat because, well, one, and this comes from working all those bigger gigs with Nick out in Nashville. You can't eat out every day of the week. It's not healthy. I don't care how, where you go. It's expensive and it's not healthy. If you make your own lunch or dinner and you bring that in, at least you know where it came from, what's in it. If you have a special diet, if you're vegan or vegetarian, you know what you're getting. Mm -hmm. I'm not either of those things, but I like to eat healthy and I don't need a lot of salt or a lot of red meat and I like vegetables. And Wait, you like vegetables? (laughs) Yeah, I love vegetables. (laughs) No, just kidding. But you know, they get expensive too. So like keeping a lid on that, I see artists come in, it's like, oh, is there Starbucks around here? And everybody's got to have Starbucks. And it's like, whoever's paying for that, they, they just spent like 50 or 60 bucks for the room. Then you got like sugar high. But I learned this from Joe and I watched him do this. He just sits there like a tank and he goes through the day and it's like a different type of stamina. And I kind of like learned if I have my coffee in the morning without sugar, and I didn't get this from him, but if I do that, I don't spike. I'm even for the rest of the day. And you can sit there for hours and hours and hours and still work and be productive. I think Joe's just got a bag of Kit Kats that he feeds himself (laughs) with all day long. Yeah, then he goes up and then he comes down. Isn't that Joe saying he's a, he loves Kit <laughs> yeah. Kats? Yeah. I remember I brought an espresso machine into the studio and he was like, dude, that's badass. And he was just, hey, see if the guys down the hall want one. Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I had like a modest car. I had a Mini Cooper. It was paid for. I drove that into the ground. I'm leasing a car. Nobody cares what you drive. Who cares? I'm going to the studio. It's just me and my car. Who cares? It's cheap. I don't have to worry about it. The big fancy house, don't worry about it. Hey, I need a 57. You might need that. Or, hey, I need a better vocal mic. Well, there's some options out there. Do you need a Elam 250, Telefunken 251? Maybe not. SM7 is a great mic, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and for 350 bucks or 400 bucks, you can have world-class vocals. Get the right mic pre and a compressor and you're ready to go. Just a, a side diversion, a friend of mine called me up and he goes, hey, I got this guy, he's really having trouble getting solid vocals and he's using a TLM 103 and and I said, well, where's he doing the vocals? Oh, in his house. I said, tell him to get rid of the condenser mic, tell him to buy an SM7, get a dynamic yeah. mic. And he said, really? An SM7? I said, look, dude, it's good enough for James Hetfield, Billy Corgan, Michael Jackson, Come on. Anthony Kiedis. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I talked to him the other day and, he's, and he said, hey, I talked to my guy. Man, he's over the moon. Thank you so much. Yeah. You don't need to pick up all that information. I just did a shootout for this artist because he's like really excited to be in the studio. And I put out the M49 and then the 47 and then I put an SM7 and all going through Shadow Hills mic pre through the same compressor. And I've got four channels on this thing. And the 49 is just so nice. And the 47 was just as nice. And it was just a little bit more weight in the bottom. And it was just a little richer, but the top end was a little chiselly. And then the SM7 just kind of like was there. And it wasn't like, there's a $12,000 difference between these mics. There wasn't. And it was either of those mics would have been great on the track. But the singer was like, wow, I had no idea. So we used the 49 and the SM7 together. And then I just did quick time build doubles out of the other tracks that I didn't comp off the SM7. Yeah. It's interesting. And I don't want to necessarily go down an SM7 rabbit hole, but I've worked with voiceover people and there's this voiceover producer I've done a fair amount of work for. And every time I come in, take her condenser mic down and put the SM7 up and the people coming in are like, I've never seen this mic before. Is this good enough? And then they talk and they're like, oh, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have to hear the inside of their mouth. That's right. (laughs) Moving forward, where do things stand today, regardless of COVID? Where do you find yourself at this point in your career? Well, one, extremely lucky. I'm working with Jerry Cantrell on music and he's keeping me busy every now and again. And then Jim Scott also, he's got a bunch of stuff happening up at 
players. Have you heard of Jim Scott? Jim was on the podcast like in the probably the double digit days. You know, we're oh, now wow. we're now in the triple digit days. And yeah. Jim was on episode number 58 and we did oh, that wow. in front of in front of an audience at AES, I believe. Oh, awesome. Yeah. yeah. No, he's great. And I've known I've known him from Sound City. He was the one all hands on deck for the Tom Petty session. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he was great. Great guy. Really lovely person. Yeah, so I get to work with him and listen to groovy music and watch him do his thing because he doesn't document. When he does his mixes, he just pushes everything into his 8048 and just rocks that thing until it's where he wants it. Then he prints it and he'll print a vocal up and a vocal down and, oh, maybe the slide up version or one with less reverb or something. And then he's done because it's easier for him to just pull the tracks up and remix it again because there's nothing in Pro Tools. I'm just hitting play. There's no plugins and he's just doing it all on the console. That's pretty fun to watch and I get paid for it. <laughs> How do you determine what you charge people? I mean, you've named several different situations and you know, it's mm -hmm. one thing to go up to Jerry Cantrell's house or go work with Jim, but how do you make it work? It's kind of a touchy thing. Like Jim Scott, he's like, I need somebody to come up here. Are you available? I can do this. Hmm. Okay. You're Jim Scott, and I absolutely will take your money to do that. And it's not a lot, but you know what? At the end of the week, it adds up. Or I could be sitting at home spending money. If I'm at home, I'm on Reverb, or I'm on eBay, or <laughs> you know how it gets. <laughs> and I'm learning. It sounds city. There weren't a lot of mixed sessions there. There was like five. It was a tracking studio. So you either you're doing drums in A or tracking live in A, and then you do all your overdubs in B, and that transition would happen over the middle of the night. So you'd get no sleep that first day, and then you're still working. But yeah, so I just jumped off the cliff on that one. <laughs> well, so Jim says, this is what I offer. Yeah, so I have a manager who handles like, Fig, don't tell him you charge that much. I'm like, well, they're friends of mine. I'm doing their record. Just can you do some paperwork? I have to have that argument with her sometimes. But sometimes she's like, hey, Fig, just let me handle that, especially if it's with a label. Mm. So I let her handle that stuff. When it's indie bands around town, I think this band's super cool. I want to work with them. Talk to my manager. She's going to make it work out. And I call her and I'm like, I really want to work with these guys. Whatever their budget is, let's figure out a way to make it happen. Do you find that if there's any barriers to getting the work off the ground, like, hey, talk to my manager, they'll figure out a rate, mm -hmm. as opposed to them saying, no, man, we just, we'll just pay you hourly. We'll write you a check at the end. Yeah, hourly, to me, hourly sounds like too expensive. Because hmm. I would say my hourly rate would be 75 bucks an hour. And if you do that times 10, like 10 hour a day, that's 750 bucks. I know they can't afford that. So it's like, we can work. You know, there's yeah. wiggle room, especially if it's an indie artist and they're pulling the money out of their own pocket. And I assume, Jerry, that's going to be through management and a label. There's a whole infrastructure there. So you just, yeah, the managers talk. Yeah. How do you get to a point where a manager becomes a relevant person in your life? Like a needed person. How yes. did you make that transition from you're running everything to they're running everything? Yeah. So, you know, I have a unique relationship with my manager. I hired her, Barbara West at B West Music. She was part of the legal team over at McDonough Management that handles Joe Barisi and Dave Bianco and Sheps. When the industry went downhill, he slimmed up his office and let her go. But she has a, a little management company now. And I was hiring her to get me out of my BMI deal as an artist, an affiliate. And she's like, well, Fig, you know, if you were my client, this would be free. And I'm like, oh, it's okay. I didn't think I had enough gigs to warrant having a manager. So we go pan out from there and go down to like 2011 when I'm working with Evanescence and we worked out a rate. I'm in Nashville. They put me up in a corporate condo and I'm there for 14 weeks. They paid me for two. Like a month later, I'm like emailing. I'm like, we're still on the record. And I'm like, hey, you know, I only re received the first two weeks of my invoices. And I would just keep sending them emails. And 96 business days later, I was still not paid. Hmm. And so I was already back in Los Angeles and setting up with Allison Chains. And I was talking with Barbara about this BMI thing. I'm like, look, Barbara, I'm having an issue. I can't seem to get paid the rest of my money from this Evanescence gig. Hmm. And she's like, what's the label? And I told her, and she's like, oh, is that blah, blah, blah's label? I'm like, yes, that's the guy. All right, Fig, I'm not gonna promise anything, but I'm gonna make a phone call. I'm like, all right. 
And then an hour later, I get a New York phone number. I'm like, hello? Hi, this is blah, blah, blah. I'm accounting over at the label. And we're so sorry. And we're going to have a check out to you as soon as possible. And I was like, all right. And the next day I had a check like FedExed in my hand. And I called Barbara. I'm like, you're hired. And that was it. So she's been involved in everything I do. And sometimes it's slim. Sometimes it's great. So I just let her handle that. And she makes sure I get paid. Because that's the last thing I want to have to do is chase a label down. They don't know who I am. They're just, yeah. I'm just the engineer. That's what they think. But obviously, Barbara has some some weight. Yeah, she came up at A&M and she knows everybody. At A&M, I think the studios. And she knows all the legal stuff and she knows everybody in the biz. So why not? I had an interesting conversation with Tony Maserati about this. Tony has never had a contract with his manager. He's mm. of the opinion that if you screw me once... I'm out of here and you just don't have my business anymore. Yeah. Do you have a contract with Barbara? I don't. Okay. It's it's a, basically a handshake. Like we have wrestling matches every now and again, but yeah, she takes care of the business. And I know it's not the nineties, but sometimes I feel like she thinks it's the nineties. She's like, oh, fit, you should be getting way more money. And I'm like, Barbara, relax. But she does make sure she looks out for me. And if she can get an extra 25 bucks, great. That adds up over the week. And when you, your comment about the nineties referring to basically the reality of budgets. Yes, because it's like a tenth, if yeah. that. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. I guess you had had some credits that she felt, okay, I could take you on. Mm -hmm. Is that really the trick? I mean, to go from working with local bands that are paying you at the end of the session to major label stuff, is that the dividing line for management, do you think? Yeah, I think so. Because if you're working with these guys you see at the club when you could go to a club and all of the band is pulling all of their resources to pay you to do an EP and as best as possible. I don't think you need a manager for that, but it's kind of nice if you have someone that knows how to put together a little production deal and if they get picked up or if that little tune gets on a movie, there's a little back end for you somewhere mm. for giving them such a bro rate in the first place. They're going to pay you cash usually, but having somebody that can go after whatever administration you have to go through, like in a record label, dealing with whoever's in accounting or receivables and trying to get that moving for you without a manager, that's extremely tough. doesn't matter how nice you are or not nice. Well, and she definitely showed her value from the get-go with getting yeah. you the rest of that money, which is great. Yeah. And she looks at me and she's like, we're going to do this mix or we're going to produce this band. And it's a real simple production memo, nothing fancy. All right, cool. And they sign it. Great. We're golden. We can move forward. Not every band needs that. And is it generally, do management managers from your experience just operate off of a percentage of the whole thing? Yeah, of what I get. Right. But not the budget. They're not going to take a piece of whatever the, the studio booking is or, and on top of the rentals, like, oh, hey, we have the studio and the rentals and the whole thing came out to this plus my thing. And he, they're going to take their percentage off the top of that. No, it's just what I'm getting paid. Makes sense. Okay. Mm -hmm. Clearly, I don't have a manager oh, sorry. to know that. So. <laughs> Or congratulations. <laughs> okay, great. All right, right. Can be good or bad. We're almost out of time. I do have a, a couple of remaining questions. What is your best advice when it comes to, and we've already kind of touched on it, but to survive as an audio professional in this day and age, what is the best advice that you would have, whether it be financial advice or any kind of mindset one needs to have? What are your thoughts? Just keep at it. I guess the gig is to look for your next gig. And I like to be on the recording side of things where we're in a studio, but I have other friends who that didn't work out and now they're doing front of house for the Pixies or Dead Can Dance and they're kicking ass. So if you want to be part of this world, to be able to do it all. Don't be afraid to go on the road and do in-ear monitors for somebody or you're learning something. Yeah, just be open and have patience and you have to really love it to do it. I think most of the people that were in this just to make money kind of fell out because there's not really any money in it anymore. Even though I hear like, oh, the music industry has tons of money right now. And it's really because I'm not seeing it. <laughs> <laughs> there's all these streaming things and podcasts. But at the end of the day, I want to record a record and get paid a little bit for that and contribute. I want that thing to live on. But that takes patience. Yeah. And I was going to ask you the health question, but you've already answered that by saying that you run a fair amount. Yes. 
Yeah, because at Sound City, and I forgot to mention, Matt Hyde would come in there all the time. And what a great engineer, producer that guy is. And hilarious. But he went from, and he says it, he was on drugs and he got sober. And then it was just like ice cream for the other 20 years. And, you know, sitting in that chair and you get big. So you're not moving around. I watched him and he dropped so much weight. And it's like, wow, Matt, that's impressive. He really got his life back together. So I was like, I like running. So I'm going to do that. And I can just do it here at my house. I don't have to get in a car or do anything. Just put my shoes on, step out the front door and go. Yeah. And I can listen to rough mixes while I'm doing it. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a runner. I'm a walker, but I love walking. And in my early years of living in San Francisco, I'd be, you know, walking up and down those hills all the oh, time. Yeah. And now, of course, I live in the suburbs. And I've got kids and mm-hmm. drive everywhere, but I do my best to walk purposefully. It's important to get out of that chair, isn't it? It is. It's really important. And working with Jim Scott is like, let's take a little break. Let's stretch our legs and let's go look at the sunset. And he really takes his time to like enjoy what's around. It's kind of nice with the way he paces things, even though it's like, we're going to get here at 10 or 11. And we work till sometimes nine o'clock, but right around 430 or when the sun's going down, hey, let's go check out the sunset. Hmm. It's like, all right, cool. We just chit chat and talk about the day and what's going on in our lives and watch the sun go down. And he's up in Newhall. I don't know if you know what that is. Hmm. It's kind of right near Magic Mountain. And there's this all these California oh. rolling hills and the sun just goes down behind it. And then all of a sudden this, this fiery pink sky just takes over the light blue. And it's just amazing. Good perspective. Good to get out. Yeah. There's a life out there away from, the, <laughs> I don't know if you remember Danny Buchanan, the tech over at Henson. If you call him, it's like, this is a computer question. Calm down, turn your computer off. It's going to be okay. <laughs> 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 well, on that note, hey man, really great to meet you. Thank you so much for taking time to, to answer my questions. And I hope to meet you in person at some point. That'd be great. If you're ever down in LA, North Hollywood, let me know and I'll give you a tour of Dave's room. It's a super fun fun tracking studio. Oh, I'd love that. Love that. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Paul. I appreciate it. Take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Paul Fig here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Want to wish you all a happy holiday season to you. Hopefully we will have a much better year than we did here in 2020. Want to thank my crew. That includes Emery Plaw in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme music, and Mr. Chuck Smith there with his magical voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn, subscribe on iTunes, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.